0: Welcome to Russian History Retold Episode 262 KGB Operations in Europe and the U.S. Part 1 Last time, we talked about the historical relationship between Russia and Poland. Today, we begin a two-part series about the KGB and its spying activities. My sources for these two episodes are A Failed Empire by Vladislav Zubak, Reds, McCarthyism in 20th Century America by Ted Morgan, and The Sword and the Shield, the Mitrokhin Archive, and the Secret History of the KGB by Christopher Andrew and Vasily Mitrokhin. Before we get too deep into the subject, I'd like to share the numerous name changes of what was to become the KGB. While researching this topic, I thought he had come across a Monty Python skit as the changes in names, leaders, and operatives transformed at a blistering pace. In December 1917, Lenin created a secret police force known as the Cheka. Its name was the All-Russian Extraordinary Committee to Combat Counter-Revolution and Sabotage. It was first headed by Felix Dzerzhinsky along with Yakov Peters, a Latvian Bolshevik. Peters would be one of the many former heads of the secret police to be arrested and executed during one of Stalin's many purges. On February 6, 1922, the Cheka was turned into the GPU, or State Political Directorate. It was still led by Dzerzhinsky, but now it was a subsidiary of the NKVD, known as the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs. This setup would only last a year and a half, as the GPU would transform into the OGPU, or the All-Union State Political Board. Nevertheless, Dzerzhinsky would lead it until his death in 1926, and this is rare, of natural causes. His successor was Václav Manzynski, a Polish-Russian communist who spoke about 10 languages. He would die in 1934 at the age of 59. There are rumors that his successor, Genrik Jagoda, had poisoned him, but this has never been substantiated, but not surprising to me. The People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs would return as the NKVD and serve as the top level of the security police, with the GUGB, or the main directorate for state security, being trans- the transformed GPU. Yagada would be its leader for two years, from 1934 until his arrest and subsequent execution in 1936. He would be followed by Nikolai Yezhov, who would also be arrested and summarily executed in 1938. This iteration of the secret police would last until 1941, when it would be split up yet again into the NKGB, or People's Commissariat for State Security, led by Vyassilad Merkulov. Following Stalin's death, Merkulov was arrested and executed by firing squad, along with his patron Beria and five other associates on December 23, 1953. The GUGB, Main Directorate for State Security, would be yet another subsidiary of the new NKVD in late 1941, under the auspices of Lavrenti Beria. However, that would only last two years when the NKGB would be split off. Then, in 1946, a totally new organization was created known as the MGB, or Ministry of State Security. It would be run by three men, Viktor Abakumov from March 18, 1946 to July 14, 1951, Sergei Ogolstov from July 14 to August 9, 1951, and then finally Semyon Ignatiev, who lasted until March 5, 1953. Then Beria created the MVD, or Ministry of Internal Affairs, He would head it until his arrest in June of 1953. His successor was Sergei Kruglov. He would lead the organization until its reorganization as the KGB in 1956. Its leadership over the years included Ivan Serov, Alexander Shalepin, Vladimir Semichansky, Yuri Andropov, Vitaly Fyodorchuk, Viktor Chudov, Birokov, Vladimir Khrushchev, Leonid Shabarshin, and finally Vadim Bakhtin. In today's Russia, the Federal Security Service of the Russian Federation, FSB, was established in 1995, along with the Federal Protective Service, or the FSO. The GURU continues to operate as well. So, now that we have that mess straightened out as best as we can, we can move towards the topic at hand, the KGB's activities within Europe during the Cold War and the U.S. The primary source of information we have is from Vasily Mitrohin, a former KGB agent. Between 1972 and 1984, he supervised the move of the archive of the first chief directorate from Lubyanka to the new KGB headquarters as Yasinevo. All in all, he checked and prepared for the movement of approximately 300,000 files. While doing so, he made handwritten copies and immensely detailed notes of documents from the archive and removed them each evening under significant threat of being found out. He likely would have been tortured and executed had anyone discovered what he was doing. And by the way, there's many uh, Soviet apologists out there who condemn anyone who says that uh, Mitrohen was being honest about things. They say he was a liar, a cheat, and and his information was false. But as we will find out, that's not the case. While copying the material, Mitrohen grew disillusioned with the brutal oppression of the Soviet regime. In 1992, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, he, his family, and his archive were exfiltrated by the UK's secret intelligence service. What was interesting about his escape and subsequent extrication by the British was that he first offered his material to the Americans at their embassy in Riga, Latvia. They thought his documents were fake, so they rejected him outright. And as I said, some have claimed that the material from Mitrohins is not credible, But that has been countered by many in the know. For example, investigative journalist and author Joseph Trento once commented, quote, We know the Mithraim material is real because it fills in the gaps in Western files on major cases through 1985. His book, which I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, was published in 1999 and revealed the names and activities of thousands of Soviet spies throughout Europe and the United States. Some of those outed admitted their spying activities, further proving the authenticity of Mitrohin's notes. You can find the original documents that he wrote at the Churchill Archive Center at the Churchill College at Cambridge University. Unfortunately, none of it has been translated from Russian, but you can find translations in the books by Mitrohin and Professor Christopher Andrew. One of the most secret sections of the KGB files that Mitrohin worked on was known as Directorate 8. This is what Christopher Andrew wrote about Mitrohin's work there. Quote, on Wednesdays, he went to the Lubyanka to work on the FCD's most secret files those of Directorate 8, which ran illegals, KGB officers and agents, most of Soviet nationality, working under deep cover abroad as foreign citizens. Once reviewed by Mitrohin, each batch of files were placed in sealed containers, which were then transported to Yasenevo on Thursday mornings, accompanied by Mitrohin, who checked them on arrival. Andrew also shared the oath these quote-unquote illegals had to swear before being sent down on a mission. Quote, Deeply valuing the trust placed upon me by the party and the fatherland and imbued with a sense of intense gratitude for the decision to send me to the sharp edge of the struggle for the interest of my people. As a worthy son of the homeland, I would rather perish than betray the secrets entrusted in me or put into the hand of the adversary materials which could cause political harm to the interests of the state. With every heartbeat, with every day that passes, I swear to serve the party, the homeland, and the Soviet people. These illegals were the cornerstone of the operations of the NKVD and KGB from the time just before the end of World War II until the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. They still operate today under the Russian SSB. It would take a few hours to list all of the people who served as illegals in the U.S. and Europe, as well as those who turned on their countries to help Soviet spying. So instead of listing them, I'll pick and choose those who I think were some of the most important over the years. The first is Morris Cohen. Morris Cohen was born in Harlem, New York City, on July 2, 1910, to a Jewish immigrant family. His father was from the outskirts of Kiev, with his mother coming from Vilnius in present-day Lithuania. Morris was a gifted athlete, earning a football scholarship from Mississippi State University. After earning his bachelor's degree in business, he went to the University of Indiana to pursue a graduate degree. There, he became a member of the National Student League, a communist organization. After one semester, he was declared persona non grata and returned to the Bronx, where he became a full member and organizer for the American Communist Party. After World War II, he received a master's degree in education from Columbia University. Cohen started his espionage work for the Soviet Union in November 1938 after being injured while fighting in the Spanish Civil War. Drafted into the U.S. Army in 1942, he returned in 1945 where he resumed his spying activities. Cohen, along with his wife Lona, delivered detailed blueprints on the nuclear bomb to Moscow in 1945 as well as through the 1950s. After traveling around the world while working for the KGB, they would eventually settle down in Great Britain. British security officers arrested the Cohens on January 7, 1961 for their part in a Soviet espionage network known as the Portland Spy Ring that had penetrated the Royal Navy. They were convicted of espionage for the Soviet Union and sentenced to 10 years in prison. However, Morris and Lona, served only eight years in jail because they were subjects of a prisoner exchange. In July 1969, Britain exchanged them for Gerald Brooke, a British subject held in the Soviet Union, and two others convicted of mm, drug smuggling. The Coens were awarded the Order of the Red Banner and Order of Friendship of Nations by the Soviet Union for their espionage. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union, they were also given the title of Hero of the Russian Federation by the Yeltsin government. One of the more interesting characters during this time in the U.S. was William Weisband Sr., a Ukrainian-American cryptanalyst and NKVD agent with the codename LINK. He is best known for his role in revealing U.S. decryptions of Soviet diplomatic and intelligent codes to the Soviet intelligence known as the Venona Project. This project, which we'll go into in a few, was one where the Americans and British had figured out the codes the Soviets were using in communications during World War II. Weissband had warned the Soviets about this, which allowed them to send misinformation. His work at Arlington Hall, the headquarters of the United States Army's Signal Intelligence Service, the SIS, cryptography effort during World War II. Weissband was found out to be an NKVD agent in 1950, but he was not put on trial as the U.S. government didn't want the publicity. Instead, he was convicted of contempt for not appearing at a grand jury investigation. Weissband would be sentenced to a year in prison. That was the end of his spying as he would become an insurance salesman, dying in 1967. What made him so interesting is how he was able to avoid detection for so many years. Many said it was due to his gregarious personality. We do not know the amount of damage he did over the years, as much of the material about Weissband has been kept secret to this day. The Venona project did have several significant accomplishments in uncovering spies within the United States and Europe. Among those identified were Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, Alger Hiss, Harry Dexter White, the second highest official in the Treasury Department, Lachlan Curie, a personal aide to Franklin Roosevelt, and Maurice Halpern, a section head in the Office of Strategic Services. In the Office of Strategic Services, it was estimated that between 15 and 20 spies were operating at any given time. Additionally, identities soon emerged of American, Canadian, Australian, and British spies in service to the Soviet government, including Klaus Fuchs, Alan Nunn May, and Donald McLean. Others worked in Washington in the State Department, the Treasury, and even the White House. Other names and agencies filled with Soviet spies included Duncan Lee, Donald Wheeler, Jane Foster, Zlatkowski, and Maurice Halpern. In addition, the War Production Board, the Board of Economic Warfare, the Office of Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, and the Office of War Information included at least half a dozen Soviet sources, each among their employees. To say that the government was loaded with spies, given the data coming from the Venona Project and the Mitrohin Archive, would be a gross understatement. One of the biggest names though to come out of Venona and Mitrohin was one of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's closest advisors and friends, Harry Lloyd Hopkins. Hopkins was one of the men who oversaw parts of the New Deal, as well as the Lend Lease Program under which the United States supplied the United Kingdom, Soviet Union, France, China, and other allied nations with food, oil, and equipment between nineteen forty one in 1945. There was one spy, though, who went under the cryptonym alias of 19. Some claim it was Edvard Benes, president of the Czechoslovak government in exile, or Larry Dugan, a 20th century American economist who headed the South American desk at the United States Department of State during World War II. He is best known for falling to his death from the window of his office. In New York 10 days after questioning by the FBI about whether he had contacts with Soviet intelligence. A morning, according to Mitrohin, it was neither of these men. It was undoubtedly Harry Hopkins. Furthermore, Oleg Godarevsky, a high-level KGB officer who also defected from the Soviet Union, reported that Ishak Akmerov. The KGB officer who controlled the clandestine Soviet agents in the U.S. during World War II had said that Hopkins was, quote, the most important of all Soviet wartime agents in the United States. If this was the case, it would be the highest ranking American ever to commit espionage for any foreign power in the country's history. One of the most important outcomes of the Venona project was the uncovering of the depth of the espionage related to the atomic bomb project at Los Alamos, New Mexico. It was one of the reasons Joseph Stalin acted unsurprised when then-American President Harry Truman told him about the successful testing of the bomb when they met at Potsdam. Actually, Stalin knew about the bomb way before Truman had because FDR had kept its knowledge away from his vice president. There is some controversy about Venona's information that uncovered Julius and Ethel Rosenberg's role in passing along secrets about the atomic bomb project to the Soviets. For many years, the sons of Julius and Ethel, along with others, claimed that the conviction and subsequent execution of the two for espionage were based on Cold War paranoia, and not solid evidence. However, Venona was clear that Julius was definitely passing top-secret information about radar, sonar, jet propulsion engines, and valuable nuclear weapon designs. Ethel was likely only an accessory who helped recruit her brother David into the spy ring and did clerical tasks such as typing up documents Julius then passed to the Soviets. After the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, the ability to see some declassified material there and the release of some of the decoded messages from Venona in 1995, it was clear they were indeed guilty. There was another group of co-conspirators with the Rosenbergs who were sentenced to prison, including Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, who had made a plea agreement, as well as Harry Gold and Martin Sobel. Klaus Fuchs, a German scientist working in Los Alamos, was convicted in the United Kingdom. The Rosenberg Ring, as it has been called, was incredibly busy and productive. Here is what they said about them in the Mitzrohin archives. Quote, the Ring was producing so many classified documents to be photographed, in Kvasnikov's apartment that the New York residency was running dangerously short of film. The residency reported that Roosevelt, Rosenberg was receiving so much intelligence from his agents that he was finding it difficult to cope. We were afraid of putting liberal out of action with overwork. Liberal and Antenna were the code names for Julius Rosenberg. Remember earlier when I told you about Morris and Lona Cohen? Well, they were head of the volunteer network of spies and included Vilyam Genrokovich Fisher, who was likely the only English-born Soviet intelligence office. Fisher was one of the most intriguing spies, as his parents were Russian revolutionaries who fled the country in 1901, emigrating to Great Britain. Fisher was born in 1903, and returned to Russia with his parents in 1921. Because of his being foreign-born, he was under suspicion of being a spy against the Soviet Union. But that was never proven. How he survived the Great Purge, though, is a mystery. But he did. Over the years, he became increasingly trusted, eventually being given control of volunteer. He was able to use Ted Hall, a physicist working at Los Alamos, with the code name MLAD. Due to his stellar work, Fisher was awarded the Order of the Red Banner in August 1949. The following year, Volunteer had to be disbanded due to the arrest of the Rosenbergs. The Coens hightailed it to Mexico, where they underwent a transformation into Peter and Helen Kroger. They used those names until they made it to Great Britain, only to be arrested in 1961. During World War II, the Communist Party of the United States of America, CPUSA, was critical in helping the Soviets penetrate key positions within the U.S. government, the Intelligent Community, and, of course, the Manhattan Project. With the onset of the Cold War, the CPUSA became under heavy surveillance. In 1949, the Secretary General of the CPUSA, Gene Dennis, was arrested along with 10 other members under the charge of advocating the overthrow of the U.S. government. The Supreme Court upheld the convictions and the five-year sentences in 1951. This opened the floodgates in the prosecution of over 100 other members of the CPUSA. It crippled any spying activities they had for the next 10 years. It was this and the arrest and confession of Klaus Fuchs as being a Soviet spy, and the conviction of Alger Hess that set off the series of investigations and Senate hearings led by Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy. This is where we stop now, as I want to use the McCarthy hearings as the starting point for the next episode. I will share what many have suggested that McCarthy, in his zeal to uncover communist infiltration into every part of the U.S. government, he became, as Christopher Andrew writes, quote, McCarthy ultimately did more for the Soviet cause than any agent of influence the KGB ever had. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time as we continue discussing the KGB operations in Europe and the U.S. So, until next time, das Vidanya is za Zavinjamanya.